perfectly normal. Every 36-year-old is still in school. It, uh, it really helped out. There's no good introduction to war. I tried to come up with as many as I could before we jumped into Deuteronomy 20. Um, I thought about uh, Vietnam War protest songs. Um, you can Google when you get home war, what is it good for, and enjoy that later. Um, it just didn't fit what we were doing this morning. Uh, I thought about scenes of warfare, you know, one of these pictures that we have in our Bible of what it was like in the uh, ancient Near East. I finally decided the best thing to do with warfare in the Bible is uh, like jumping into a swimming pool. You just go head first into the deep end and get it over with. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Before we look at Deuteronomy 20, there's always two questions that you have to deal with when it comes to the topic of war. You always have to deal with how can a good and loving God command the killing of men, women, and children in the Old Testament? That's the first question that you always have to deal with. The second question you always have to deal with is you have to deal with all the ethical questions. Is war okay? Is war necessary? Can I support a war as a Christian? Can I participate in a war as a Christian? So these are all the ethical questions we have to deal with. Now, that's not our task this morning. Our task this morning is to read Deuteronomy 20 and ask how it relates to Northwick Church today, 2012, and how it relates to loving obedience to a loving God. But because these other questions are asked so much, maybe even some of you in the room have been asked one of them, we need to say a couple of quick words about them. Uh, with regard to how can a good and loving God command the killing of men, women, and children, you have to remember this is a different period of time in world history than you and I are in today. All right? First, uh, 2 Kings 11 gives us a little bit of an insight into this. 2 Kings tells us in the new year, that is March, the springtime, when the kings go out to war. And then it goes on to tell a story. You see, in, in March, all the men get together with their king. They go out. They defend their, uh, their borders. They enlarge their borders. Or they just fight to have victories, which they go back and record in the name of their God so that they can sit back and say, Our God is greater than your God. Look at the number of victories he's given us. So it was a very different time than one that you and I live in today. In the story of Christianity... God's work from the creation and fall all the way to the recreation in the book of Revelation. We're also in a very different period of time than they were. At that point in time, God was establishing his people, his nation. And they had to be whole, holy as he was holy. And they had to be completely different than all of the other nations back then. Because this was the nation that God was going to enter into creation through as Jesus Christ and redeem all of creation, like Romans 8 and the book of Revelation tell us about. And so this group of people had to be holy as God was holy, and wholly different than everybody else in the ancient Near East. They had to be a separate people. This is not the part of the story that you and I are in. We don't defend and expand God's kingdom through physical violence. We do it through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the part of the story that you and I are in in 2012. And the part that we need to let inform us this morning when we read Deuteronomy 20. I would also recommend that you go back and listen to Jeff Doyle's sermon, uh, Deuteronomy 7. This is exactly what he did in that difficult chapter. He talked about the period of the story, the grand narrative of Scripture that Deuteronomy took place in, and the period that we're now in and how it applies to us. 
The second question we have to deal with are all of the ethical ones. Is war okay? Is it not? Is it necessary? Um, you're not the first to ask those questions. Uh, they've been asked almost as long as the church has been in existence. Um, Augustine, one of the church fathers, he lived and wrote in 300 AD, uh, probably wrote more on this than anybody else. And so what I would uh, ask you to do this morning, if you have some of those questions, seek out some of the ethicists that we he have here at North Wake, some of our elders like Mark Lederbach, uh, maybe Greg Mathias. Um, ask them those questions. They can point you towards a lot more resources than I can to help you think rightly about warfare. Is it okay? Is it just? Is it necessary? They can help you with those questions far better than I can. Like I said, our task is to see how Deuteronomy 20 relates to loving obedience to a loving God. Now you might remember back to Larry's first sermon on Deuteronomy in January. He set all of this up for us. He said that Deuteronomy was three sermons by Moses that have been written down. And the content of those three sermons is a covenant document. You say, stop for a minute, Jerry. Quit using seminary language. What is a covenant document? All right? Here's what a covenant document is not, right? We all think in legal terms, right? Mary Catherine comes in. She sits down at the breakfast table with me, and I look at her, and I say, good morning, party of the first party. She says, good morning, party of the second party. I say, how are the dependents? All right? That's what we all think of when we think of covenants, right? These are legal contracts, right? <clears throat> um, the covenant the covenant document, the, the legal document spelled out in Deuteronomy is a, uh, is a contract, it's a covenant. Let me not call it a contract because that would be wrong. It's a covenant whereby a great king, that is God, enters into a permanent, undissolvable relationship with a lesser people, Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, the church today in the new covenant. It contains statements about how great God is, how gracious He is to His people, and His expectations of His people. And so these are the things that are contained in Deuteronomy. And this is what we have to carve out when we look at Deuteronomy 20 today. You might think about last week's sermon, Deuteronomy 19. God expects justice of His people. So that if there's a murderer, if there's someone who hates his brother, who has lie in wait for his brother to kill him, he's to be delivered over to the avenger, and he is not to be pitied. There was a great expectation by God on the people for justice, and for justice not to be perverted. But in God's graciousness, he says when you go into the land, you'll carve the land up into three equal territories, and in each of those territories... Equally accessible, you'll place cities of refuge. So that if there's an accidental killing, if two men are out in the woods chopping down a tree, was the example given, and the axe head comes off and kills his brother, he can flee, the manslayer can flee to the city of refuge, and there be safe and be protected from the avenger. It's the graciousness of God. It's the graciousness of our great God, spelled out in Deuteronomy 20. And so it's to that end that we look at Deuteronomy 20 this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed a great God. You are ferocious for the hearts of your people. You give us good things. Your graciousness towards us is always for our good. Father, help us this morning. Help us as we look at Deuteronomy 20. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit to look at this and understand what it says about you, our great God, what it says about your expectations of us, and how it shows your graciousness towards us. Father, we pray that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right, look with me at the first few verses. You'll have to forgive me if I turn around at a couple of points. A couple of the slides this morning cut off words for me, and so I couldn't see. I'm not intentionally turning my back on you. The first few verses of Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are not drawing near for battle against your enemies. Today you are, excuse me, drawing near to battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Twice, like bookends in verse 1 and verse 4, God tells Israel, do not fear. For it is the Lord who is with you, the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do not fear or panic or be in dread. For it is the Lord who fights for you and gives victory. The first four verses of Deuteronomy 20 scream to us, it's about God. It's not about Israel. It's not about us. It's about God. John Selhammer was an Old Testament scholar. He taught here at Southeastern Seminary for a while. Reflecting on these verses, he says the central purpose of these instructions is to emphasize that Israel's warfare was not intended for foreign aggression or personal wealth. It wasn't about Israel. It was about God. This passage, just the first four verses, emphasize that for us over and over. Look at the second one. When you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. The priest? Really? We're going to send the preacher out to stir up the men's heart for battle? That's not how this works. We've all seen Braveheart. You smear blue stuff on your face. You scream, I am William Wallace. I can't do a fake Scottish accent, sorry. This is how you stir up people for battle. But in God's system, it's the priest. It's the group of Israel that God has carved out as separate and has said, you will be my representative to the children of Israel. You will make sacrifices on their behalf and intercede for the children of Israel before God. That's the group that goes out to speak to the men before battle. They're the ones who get to talk to them. And listen to what they say. Hear, O Israel. That sounds familiar to you, it should. Hear, O Israel, was how Moses introduced all of the statutes and commandments in chapter 5. God's expectations of his people were introduced with, Hear, O Israel. In chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, is how the greatness of God is introduced. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Hear, O Israel, is how the command was given in chapter 9 to go in and take the promised land. Hear, O Israel, is a phrase loaded with meaning in Deuteronomy. It's to remind you of God's greatness, God's graciousness towards his people, and God's expectations. And so that's what the priest says to the men before battle. Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you. It is about God. 
It is God's battle. It's not theirs. It is God's victory. It's not theirs. And indeed, when Israel is obedient, this is exactly what we see. Joshua chapter 2. This is Rahab talking to the spies. She's hid them on the roof. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And it goes on in verse 11. And it says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. When Israel went to battle, it was God who went for them. It was God who battled. It was God who gave the victory. It was about God. It was not about Israel. And so we go to these next stipulations that God gives. And he says, Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her. Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. So if you have a new house, a new garden, a new wife, just go on home. God doesn't need you today. Why, why would this be included? Why would this be in here? Well, certainly it shows us God's graciousness towards these people. New house, new garden, new wife, go home. Other places in the law, you took a year off when you took a new wife so that you could stay home and cheer up your bride. Go home. You don't, God doesn't need you today. And so this demonstrates to us God's graciousness to his people. It also demonstrates what God's doing at this point in time in the story. God's bringing Israel into the land to establish them as a people. God's concerned about family and community life within his people. God's establishing His people in the land, and to do that, they're going to need food, gardens. They're going to need houses to live in. They're going to need children to be a nation. And so not only is it God's gracious provision, but it's also for His people's good that they do these things. And then we come to this fourth stipulation. Then the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. New house, new garden, new wife, go home. Coward, go home. You say, well, Jerry, why in the world would we do this? Well, clearly, if there's something that you don't want to do for God, you're scared, you don't have to, right? I mean, that, no, no, that's not what this is teaching at all. Notice how the end of this spells it out for us. Lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. If there was anyone among the children of Israel that would cause his brother to take his eyes off of God, to not trust in God, to not trust God to have the battle and God to have the victory, go home. Don't wreck your brother. 
God was concerned about the hearts of his people. Is there, is there a bigger thing going on here in these four stipulations other than just God's graciousness, God's care and good provision for his people? I think so. If you, if you look back with me at Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, the context of the entire passage that we're in says when you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see, God tells them in the first verse, when they go out for war, they're going to face armies with more horses, more chariots, and more standing combatants than they have. And you might remember back a couple of weeks ago to Deuteronomy chapter 17, when Larry preached through it, and he covered the rules for the king. And in the rules for the king, it says that only he that is the king of Israel must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never turn that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. See, when the king was put over Israel, he wasn't allowed to trust in his military power, in his wealth, or his ability to get a date. These were not the things the king was allowed to trust in. So God limited the king. You can't multiply horses. And you can't go back to Egypt and get horses. You're limited. If you remember that sermon, you remember that after this, it goes in to that the king was supposed to write a copy of the law and read in it daily. Who was the king supposed to trust in? God. God alone. So if we go back to Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, the context of our entire passage, when you go out to war against enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, God's guaranteed that there will be horses and chariots larger than their own because he's limited Israel. And then when we see the four stipulations that we just read through, if you have a new house, if you have a new garden, if you have a new wife, go home. Israel's standing army. New house, new garden, new wife coward go home so God's also limited the size of Israel's standing army he's guaranteed that Israel would go into battle outnumbered and outgunned why would God do that because it wasn't about Israel it wasn't Israel's battles it wasn't Israel's victories it was not for their financial gain or their aggression it was ultimately about God Why? Joshua 2. God's battle, God's victory. Israel got to participate in what God was doing. All right, the next part of Deuteronomy chapter 20 contains some stipulations on how Israel was to fight. You see, for us in 2012, we have this thing called the Geneva Convention. All right. The Geneva Convention actually began in the 1860s. When you and I hear about it or read about it in a history book or study it in school, um, usually what we learn about is the Geneva Convention of 1949. This is when, in the aftermath of World War II, countries sat down together and they laid out rules for how prisoners of war were to be treated, how medical aid was to be given to warriors regardless of what side of the battle they were on how civilians were to be treated 
when they were in and around war zones. There was no Geneva Convention in the ancient Near East. War was horrible. It was abominable. It was atrocious. And I'm, I'm going to be careful this morning because there are children in the room, but the Bible sheds some light on that for us. In 2 Chronicles, it talks about how Manasseh had hooks set in him and he was drug out of Israel. Amos chapter 1 records for us that entire cities were threshed with implements of iron. It seems to be this is not normal warfare, but it's meant to bring up the image of the threshing room floor. And so it was a, it was a torturous victory, not just a victory, that these other cities and other nations fought. Amos also talks about how entire cities were emptied out and delivered over to other cities. Slavery is in mind here. And probably the worst atrocity comes at the end. It says that women with children, now this is not like moms holding babies, you and I would say moms-to-be. were destroyed so that they could expand boundaries. War was awful. It was atrocious. There was nothing to limit the atrociousness of it. Except God with His people Israel. In verses 10 and 11, He starts by telling Israel they're not allowed to fight like everybody else is allowed to fight. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you, and shall serve you. So the first thing Israel was to do in battle was offer peace. Now, these were faraway cities. Cities in the land we're going to get to in a minute. But Israel was to offer peace. And this is still, to us good Americans in 2012, a little offensive, because it says, they shall do forced labor for you and serve you. But again, Joshua 8 does a great job of kind of showing us what this really looks like. See, Joshua 8 tells the story of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were in the land, all right? They were one of the cities we're going to talk about in a minute. But they were crafty. So they put on old clothes, they take old wineskins, they take old moldy stale bread, they get on their horses, and they ride out to meet Joshua and Israel. And when they meet them, they say, look, we've come from far, far away. When we left, our clothes were good. Look at them now. When we left, our bread was straight out of the oven. Look at it now. When we left, our wineskins were good. Look at them now. Make peace with us. And so Joshua and the children of Israel make peace with the Gibeonites. They take an oath before the Lord with them. The Gibeonites leave. Three days later, as Joshua and the Israelites are crossing the land, they run into the Gibeonites. And Joshua confronts them and he says, why have you done this thing? Why did you lie to us? They wanted to live. That part's easy to figure out. All right? But because Joshua swore an oath, he would not put the city to the sword for fear of breaking his oath before God. But he tells them, for the rest of your days, you will be hewers of wood and carriers of water for the children of Israel. Life gets to stay in that city, and it gets to carry on like it's always carried on. But from there on out, they're going to make the wooden stuff, and they're going to carry the water, and they're going to be loyal to Israel. All from terms of peace. If they accept it, then they're subject to you. So what happens if they don't offer peace? But if the city makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, it's about God, 
You shall put all its males to the sword, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoils you shall take as plunder for you yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. You see, even in warfare, even when they wouldn't accept peace and came out to war against Israel, Israel had to act differently. There were restrictions put on who were combatants. There were restrictions put on how women and children could be treated. In fact, Deuteronomy 20 spells this out for us a little bit. Deuteronomy 20 says that if one of the warriors in Israel saw one of these captured women and wanted to take her for a bride, he had to bring her into his house for a month. He had to make her part of the community. And for a month, she was allowed to mourn her father's household. And then after a month, and only after a month, if he wanted to marry her, he could marry her, and she would become part of his family. But it goes on, and it gives one last stipulation. If he ever tired of her, if he ever wasn't happy with her, if he ever wanted to put her away, then she was free. Not not free like Joshua 8 that we just read about, free to continue living, free to be alive in the land. She's free. She's free, free. If you do this thing, if you bring her into the community of Israel and then decide to put her away, she is free because you've humiliated her. And so Christopher Wright, who is an ethicist and an Old Testament scholar, this is what he says when he reflects on Deuteronomy. He says, Deuteronomy advocates humane exemptions from combat. It requires prior negotiations, all for peace. It prefers nonviolence, limits the treatment of subject populations, allows for execution of male combatants only, demands humane treatment of female captives, and insists on ecological restraint. He's jumping down and getting verse 19 as well about fruit trees. But he points out how this is amazingly and remarkably different than anything else in the ancient world. In war, Israel was commanded to show a measure of grace unheard of. You say, wait, wait, hold it. Jerry, you had me until you said the word grace. We're talking about killing people. We're talking about taking captured women and making them our wives. How can you use the word grace? 1 Kings 20 tells a story for us that the king of Syria and 32 other kings come out against Ahab, the king of Israel. And they're going to make war against him and Ahab is reluctant, but then he stirs up the heart of his people, and Israel goes out, and they beat the pants off of Syria and these 32 kings. And coming just off of this whooping that Syria received, this is what the servants say in 1 Kings 20, 31. They're speaking to the king of Syria, who has just, Syria, who has just been defeated. And they say, O king, we have heard the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let us go out to them that maybe they will spare our lives. Right after the battle, they said to the king, Let us go out, for we have heard they are merciful. Now, here's a quick point of application for you this morning. We'll get to the rest in a moment. But when we in the church today oppose someone with the truth of the gospel, when we stand up for what's right and for what's true, would the person that we're opposing accuse us of being gracious and merciful? Or do we fight like everybody else fights? Just a, just a thought. 
So what about the cities that are in the land? But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. The first thing you should take note of here is these are the exact same people mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you go back and look at that chapel, chapter. So why then do one group of people get mercy and grace and another get absolute destruction? Well, Genesis 15 sets all of this up when God talks to Abraham. And he says, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a group of people out there and they still have a chance. But the day is coming when they won't. Because they will be completely and totally given over to hating God and hating what is just and right and good. They will practice abominable things. Their altars and their idols will pull Israel away from their God. God is jealous for the hearts of his people and will go to great lengths to protect them. Why no spoils? turn the heart of the people why no children because they'll grow up and they'll intermarry and they'll turn the hearts of the people and indeed that's exactly what happens in the book of Joshua if you go read it why no idols and altars Israel was commanded to go in and rip them down and burn them with fire because the idols and altars will turn the hearts of the people and God could not have that Israel was called to be a holy nation and to be completely different from every other nation around them. Remember from last week, even in Israel, the murderer was to be handed over to the avenger and he was not to be pitied. It's not easy. It's hard. But it shows us our great God and his expectation for his people. And so we come to the end when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it. You shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls." So why save the fruit trees? Well, you've already seen Christopher Wright thinks that these were ecological um, stipulations, an ecological ethic of God, even in the Old Testament. Look, leave, leave the ground, leave the land out of this. It doesn't go to battle. You know, at this point in time in the story of Christianity, God is establishing a land flowing with milk and honey, a good land to give to his people. Don't cut down the fruit trees because they're good and you should enjoy them when you're in the land. Don't cut down the fruit trees because, dare we even make a comparison here with Genesis, of every tree in the garden you can freely eat. There's not the one in the midst of the garden. Fruit trees are a good thing. And they're intended to be in the land for God's people, for them to enjoy them. 
All right, so the question then, if Deuteronomy 20 teaches us about God's greatness and God's graciousness to his people and God's expectation, how in the world does that relate to you and I right now in North Wake Church in 2012? Well, Paul helps us out greatly with this. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then we skip down to verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You and I don't fight physical battles. You and I fight spiritual ones. That's the warfare that, like it or not, you and I are engaged in every moment of every day as Christians. But there's good news. Paul highlights it for us in verse 1. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Just like warfare in the Old Testament for Israel was not about Israel. It was not for Israel's financial gain. It was about God. So too for us in the New Testament. Spiritual warfare of any kind is about God. It's His battle. It's His victory. Paul begins the whole passage, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. It's about God. It's about what God is doing. And you and I are invited to participate in that. Now this passage goes on to describe the whole armor of God. Like a good soldier, you and I are to participate in what God's doing. Scholars have noticed that in the Old Testament, physical battles were to do things like expand God's kingdom, protect God's kingdom. They were to tear down idols and altars and things that turned people's hearts away from God. And in the New Testament, they've noticed that same parallel exists with spiritual warfare. That's exactly what you and I are to do. We're to expand God's kingdom. How? Not through physical violence, but through proclaiming the gospel. And so that's our, our first real point of application this morning. How are we doing, church, at proclaiming the gospel with everything that we do? With the feed ministry? With being a part of and participating in things with the town of Wake Forest? How are we doing? How are we doing as Rob Craig has encouraged us just to find the same teller at the grocery store every time we go to the grocery store so we can have a relationship with that teller and one day say, hey, you go to church around here anywhere? How are we doing at expanding God's kingdom through proclaiming the gospel? At the bottom of Ephesians 6, after Paul goes through the whole armor of God, this is one of the things that he mentions. He says, to that end, not fighting physical battles, fighting spiritual ones, dressed in the whole armor of God. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. When was the last time we, we asked for prayer specifically so that we could proclaim the gospel to somebody we worked with? to a family member. How are, we, how are we doing with that spiritual battle? You know, in, 
in Deuteronomy 20, Israel was commanded to fight very differently with different groups of people. We see the same thing in the New Testament. No, nowhere in the New Testament are you and I allowed to go blow up abortion clinics. That's not how we fight. The way we fight this is we fight this through prayer and we give of our time and our resources to things like pregnancy support services of Wake Forest. That's how we fight this battle. But we also fight battles within the church. One of the things we have to do is we have to protect right teaching and right living within the church. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. You probably remember this. It was preached in our series on Corinthians uh, a little over a year ago. The context of 1 Corinthians 5 is a man has his father's wife, stepmom. We don't know. It's, you know. it's a weird situation, but it is not a good situation. And he seems uh, almost proud of it, and the Corinthians haven't done anything. And so Paul comes in, and Paul says to deliver this brother over to Satan that his flesh would be destroyed, but that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so he comes down to the bottom, and this is what Paul says. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Fight differently. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes Deuteronomy. Purge the evil person from among you. How are we doing at holy living? Are there idols or altars that we haven't cleared out of our lives? that are turning our hearts away from God? How are we doing at holding our brothers and sisters accountable to holy living when they ask for help in our small groups? How are we doing? God was gracious. God was about Israel's good. But make no mistake, God was so concerned with Israel's heart that anything that would turn them, Amorites, Jebusites, Gibeonites, anything that would take the focus off of God, any idol or altar that would be left there that would be worshipped instead of God, had to be completely and utterly destroyed. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, just as the book of James tells us, why would we think for a moment that God would be any less concerned or any less ferocious about mine and your hearts this morning as the church at North Wake? Daniel and the praise band are going to come up. This is a great opportunity as we worship along with them this morning. If there's if there's part of you that doesn't believe spiritual warfare really is God's, or that really, or that God can really bring about the victory, if there are idols or altars in your life that haven't been torn down, if there's areas of unholy living, now's our opportunity together as the church as we worship this great, gracious God to go to God and ask for forgiveness, ask for help ask for victory, to tell him that we trust him 100% completely to fight the battle and to give the victory.
you come.